do put your headphones on Well, I sing a new song Are you ready to talk now? Tony, are you okay? Tony, are you okay? I'm okay, Jamie <laughs> Tony is okay He's okay, Jamie I'm not standing Then again, I never did Blame it on the SMA stuff I've had it since I was a kid Are you ready? I think we're, we're recording. No, we're not. Yep. No. Yep. How could that be? How could it not be? I, to be or not to be. Jimmy, tell me, how are you? Uh, I am actually having quite a tough time in the last like few days. I'm really stressed out. You know, when people ask you how you're doing, you're supposed to just lie and say good. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, you know, I'm great. I'm fine. I'm Everything's good? You're not having any tough times? No, no. No, no tough times, times at all. <laughs> <laughs> all smiles, bro. Perfect. <laughs> so glad to hear, right? <laughs> yeah. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Let me send you a video of a cat. <laughs> content all right tell me about your tough times well there's not much to, to tell or maybe not much that i can articulate into a public medium but um i'm just I, i'm trying to make some changes and I, I and i don't know how committed i am to the changes and you know it's just a weird transitional time are you committed to the change as an idea but not, not necessarily the changes as the detail towards the change yeah i'm 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 okay with the concept of change and i'm and i'm ready to pursue the change but the actual execution of said change or the instance or manner of the change uh, is unclear the specific version of said change <laughs> exactly 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 understood exactly. so in other words good everything's fine Everything is just fine. Nothing to complain about at all. I've just been feeling a lot of stress, like physically in my body lately. And uh -huh. it's just kind of annoying. So your, your stress manifests physically for you? It can. In the past, the way that I've coped is like cardio. And cardio is less kind of reliable. I have to space it out so as not to injure myself. And so in the days when I cannot cardio, but I'm feeling stress, it just kind of lingers. And I have to figure out other ways of getting it out of me. Right. So how do you get it out of you then? I don't have an answer to that because this whole th thing about limiting my physical activity is very new. Did I ever talk to you about my master's degree? You didn't. I know, I know what the status of your master's degree is, but that's it. Incomplete. Yeah. Um, me too, though. So... I actually did my master's degree on something similar. It, the reason I ended up not doing it was because the project got too big to be a master's degree and ended up basically being the scope of a PhD and I wasn't really ready for that level of commitment. But I was trying to measure whether someone in, not whether, but how effective and ways that someone could effectively be physically active in a power chair to the point of clinically significant or like beneficial to their health, uh, like cardio. 
Are you talking about like your whole experiment with uh, like schwitzing in the shower? No, it wasn't schwitzing. It was schwitzbit. <laughs> I was wearing a schwitzbit. Uh huh. And basically, like this is this is actually a great segue into today's episode. But could I play a sport? And even though I'm not physically really that engaged in the sport because I'm just driving my chair around. Was it enough to raise my heart rate to a therapeutic level, like cardio? Uh, or alternatively, if I was, if I, let's say a person didn't have access to sport, could I wheel along the canal at a high rate of speed, sort of like maneuvering people and obstacles and bumps and pulling myself in my chair? Was that enough to get my cardio up? To a, to a, again, like a measurable, I was working with a physiotherapist to try to actually figure out what the elevated heart rate over periods of time formula was to actually calculate. Like Wouldn't it be it funny was, if your PhD thesis conclusion was just to have a lot of sex? It'd <laughs> <laughs> be fantastic. You know, I should, now that you say that, I should probably go back and continue my PhD, <laughs> do some more research. Yeah, more research. Yeah, for science. Right, exactly. Yep. Um, yeah, so it was pretty interesting. Like, I wore different kinds of devices, and then I'd wear them for a week, and I'd have certain days where I had to be sedentary, and then other days where I had to be active, and then trying to, like, measure whether sedentary days were statistically less like elevated heart rates. But then there's also like my physio, the physio I was working with tried to explain to me what, because you can't just scare yourself and that raises your heart rate. And that, you know, that doesn't count as cardio. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's the same way when someone might, that's why I don't like horror movies. To me, it's just like a cheap thrill. I get like psychological thrillers where you're like on edge the whole time. I'm into that. Okay. But when it's just like a, a scary thing pops out of the screen and makes you jump, that feels cheating to me. It feels like someone tickles you and goes funny comedy, right? <laughs> yeah, that is true. The jump scare is the horror movie equivalent of tickling <laughs> during a comedy. Look, I'm, it's a funny show. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine if, like, they come up with some kind of augmented reality television experience and you could actually get a, a device to remotely tickle you while you're watching an episode of Friends? Because that is conceivably the only way I would ever genuinely laugh at an episode of Friends. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Uh, that alienates so many people who I'm not interested in talking to, probably. Oh, man. <laughs> Imagine, like, there was one girl that's been listening to this podcast for a while, and she was just about to reach out to you to be like, Jamie, you know what? I think we have something here. <laughs> Friends is her favorite show. It's Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> Fuck. That would be my luck. <laughs> you just missed out on Jennifer Aniston, dude. I've never seen Friends. I don't know what's worse. Is it worse to just have never seen it? Or is it worse to have seen it but actively dislike it? 
I would say to have never have watched it is a a blessing. You're incredibly oh fortunate. You're so harsh. It's so bad. I think it's, we have talked about how much you dislike it, but I I've started like really uh adversarial pop culture discussions at work over the relevance of friends. Really? Yes. I it's like I'm still good friends with the people who disagree with me, but they know that if they want me to have an opinion, they ask me what I think of friends. Right. They just want to see you get going. Yeah, yeah. They want to see me take a big red button on your forehead. It is, yeah. So anyway, I have a question about your PhD. Did you have to take any classes? Well, first of all, I didn't. It, it was not a PhD. It was a master's. Oh, sorry. But they were just like, if you want to continue this project, it's going to turn into a PhD. And I was like, okay. So I pivoted, ended up doing a different thesis. Uh, but then I didn't. I wasn't inspired by it. So I also was getting sick at the time. It was like during... Uh, the time when I was in the hospital for a couple months. Remember that? I do remember. So like, I, I just was like, I'm just going to drop this. I don't blame you. Um, So your master's though, did like at the time you were attempting it, did you have to take any kinesiology courses? Like I'm sort of confused how your... My background ended up with me there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a no fair offense. question. No. Well, that's why I was working with like a physio. So right. I was basically just a pilot study or like a proof of concept. It'd be funny if like, because you're a starving student on ODSP, you had minimal benefits. And the only way for you to see a physio frequently was to pretend that he or she, <laughs> he or she was relevant to your academia. Yeah. They're like, oh, Tony, have you ever like taken a kinesiology course? You're like, no. Tony, have you ever like, uh been to a gym you're like no tony have you ever like gone on a walk you're like no i can't afford physio but i do have a fitbit <laughs> well that's the thing like it just it sort of meandered and then ended up there and it didn't have enough focus for a master's thesis so it just fizzled out i don't even know if it went anywhere i I went into my master's with a completely different idea, but I couldn't get funding for that idea. So then I tried this. My master's thesis was going to be a variation of a computer science concept called the knapsack problem, where you have like a bunch of different objects and you put them in a container and you try to determine if how they are arranged in the container is the most efficient arrangement or you try to can you try to determine the maximum number of objects you can fit inside of a specific space. So were you working closely with a magician? I, <laughs> you no, know, I was actually uh, working really closely with uh, uh, the people who wrap your gifts at Nordstrom and also uh, airline attendants. Right. Why did I say Nordstrom? I've never purchased anything from that store. You just assume. It's a fancy enough store that gift wrap your purchases. Thank you. <laughs> That's fair. I I feel like my credit card gets charged just looking into the window of a Nordstrom. Yeah, I don't think I've ever bought anything at Nordstrom. I'm... Oh, speaking of which, did you actually get your Christmas gift from me yet? No. 
No, you, there is one in the backlog, but a mutual friend of ours had to do something to the gift before she was going to give it to you. And I wonder why that hasn't occurred yet. Oh, I don't know. I'm excited to. You got mine, though. I did. Yours was very thoughtful. I, I got you something that was more of utility. Well, don't don't do that. I don't I haven't even seen it yet, so don't start downplaying already. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I just try again. Be like, I got you something <laughs> that is super useful for you. Your this the benefit of our friendship is you're gonna teach me how to be a good gifter. <laughs> our our producer is a good gifter. Which is something that uh, kind of surprised me, to be honest. Like, our producer got us those those really cool stickers. Yeah. And when he gave them to me, I was like, I was I wanted to give him a hug. It was like one of the sweetest things ever. Really, really good gift. He's not really, like, uh, he is, like, a thoughtful person and, like, very, like, warm and kind. But, like, his warmth is not, like like an immediate part of his presentation. So it's more like through his actions that he expresses warmth, much like my dad who sort of presents like a character in, in like a 1950s, like neo-noir uh, murder mystery. And he's like warm through his actions. Am I making sense or just rambling like an asshole? Yeah, no, totally. He, so like when you talk to him, he, he doesn't let you know based on how you talk how the conversation, how good of gifts he's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Like, he is thinking about you, but that's not really... He's sort of disguising the, the, the thought thread that is doing that. It's because he's a really good conversationalist. So yeah. you get wrapped up in the moment of the conversation. You do, you yeah. you forget that, like, anything exists beyond the immediate topic. And then eventually he'll pull something out randomly and you're like whoa you you really clutched up on this yeah like not only is michael like a walking ted talk but he is also like interpersonally intelligent yeah yeah so we love you michael Michael. you're the best (laughs) so beyond your super okay everything's fine is everything fine yeah it's fine i was on vacation for a week during which I tried to attend to the the things that are currently stressing me out this week. Yeah. And and so, but my vacation felt good. It's just that I, when I go on vacation, I get like accustomed to like a lot of sleep, you know, and then I have to go back to work and then my sleep isn't so good. Yeah. It's sort of stupid that I have the most sleep when I don't need to function and the least sleep when I need to function. <laughs> Well, you're a stressy sleeper, right? I fucking am a stressy sleeper. Yeah, so like when you don't have anything going on, it's easy for your brain to just be like, all right, we're good, shut it off. Shut it down, yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I don't know what it is about me. I guess maybe growing up in a closet where I had to (laughs) learn to sleep next to a running laundry machine. (laughs) But I can just close my eyes and within 15 minutes, I'm gone. And you've never in your life, have you ever had insomnia? Like, there's definitely been times where I, it'll take me like 30 minutes to, or 40 minutes to fall asleep. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And those times I'm like sitting there like, are you serious right now? <laughs> you're like, you're like mad at your uh, circadian yeah. rhythm. I I got so good at it that I looked it up once. 
how quickly can someone fall asleep? <laughs> and it's like 14 minutes is like what you, scientists say your brain can handle. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm faster than that. Dang. But I can also sleep through dangerous amounts of noise. Like, Oh, me too. I've had attendants come in in the morning and be like, whoa, did you hear that fire alarm this morning? <laughs> and I'm like, no. No, you're like, my sleep got deeper when it started fire alarming. Yeah. I was like, does it sound anything like shoes in a laundry machine? <laughs> I uh, I fall asleep like a baby, like with white noise in the background. Like actual white noise? Uh, well, I I don't. I'm not sure of the color of noise, but but shout out to any synesthetes watching and listening to this. <laughs> if you have synesthesia, we'd love to interview you and describe colors of noise to us. <laughs> no, I just mean like. Do you play white noise when you're flying asleep? I, I do. Well, I'll play like a podcast of a host. That's not white. That's noise. Okay, but hold on. The, the, my criteria is that the host has to have um, a calming voice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it can't, there's, there can't be like a lot of laughing or like pitch shifting. It's usually like, Someone who you can tell doesn't really do a whole lot of uh, research for their podcast and is most likely reading off Wikipedia or something. Okay, so you like an adult to read your bedtime story. It, that's effectively what it is, yeah. Yeah. I never liked that. My, my dad used to read us bedtime stories, and I liked the stories, but it was an ineffective way for me to fall asleep. Because I just stayed up listening to the story. Mm. So now, like, I'll put TV on while I'm getting ready for bed. But then as soon as I'm under the covers and ready to go, I turn the TV off, turn the lights off, and I'm out. Right. Like, I've dated people who will have the TV on, and they'll be watching it while they fall asleep, and they'll fall asleep to it. But then I'm usually awake, like, watching the TV. <laughs> and then they're sleeping and, I'm, and then they'll wake up to turn the TV off and I'll be like no I'm not done the episode <laughs> or they'll have like the sleep timer and you'll be like fuck <laughs> yeah it's over but I do play white noise okay yeah I was gonna say wouldn't it be funny if a synesthete like saw color like people know what synesthesia is right it's when one sense is inexplicably linked to another so uh, typically it's like, uh, words or sounds like you'll see a color in your mind's eye corresponding to words or sounds, or I don't know if there's like people who there's like a smell to particular noises or. I think synesthesia is an umbrella that can be anything because there are anything? some people that visualize numbers as colors or numbers as like spatial patterns. Um, the days of the week can be like spatial patterns. It's pretty wild. It'd be pretty funny if a synesthete, like uh, sound to color, like knew someone farted because they always see blue whenever someone farts or something. <laughs> and it's like their favorite color. Yeah. And, every, and they're like, I haven't seen blue in a while. Can you, uh, <laughs> can you read these beans? <laughs> can someone let it rip? Yeah. The, the interesting thing is, People with synesthesia, even if they have the same form of it, don't necessarily attribute the same colors to the same mm -hmm. letters. Right. 
You can't really fact check someone on synesthesia. No, you can't. <laughs> I maybe I could just be like, I have it. Your name is Brown. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have to remember, like every time you said that some word corresponded to a color. Do they ever change? I wonder if they change. I don't know. That is a good question. I'm not a synesthete. But it it would be a strange muscle because if it always did stay consistent, then it would mean in some way that it's like it's biological in nature. Like your brain is physically making that connection. Yeah. Maybe how you pronounce the word also affects the color. Like maybe it's biological, but maybe it could be like what if they just got those alphabet fridge magnets when they were a kid and they were like, oh, bees are yellow. (laughs) And they just internalize that for the rest of their lives. Yeah, they're like, I, I only see yellow bees now. I just think like uh, in university, I remember thinking it would be a wonderful tool to have for studying because I was a huge dork and I was like, I wish I had another way of encoding information. Yeah. And so you go to recollect something and you're like, no, no, no that can't be right. I'm not seeing the right array of colors. <laughs> yeah, but then you just have a different, you're like, wait, was two plus two yellow or teal? I forget. Uh, <laughs> exactly yeah yeah there's a strange shadow being cast upon you at the current moment tony and i can't really tell what's going on with your shirt but it looks like your left shoulder is like super jacked all of a sudden oh yeah that is an update i should probably tell you i'm super jacked now <laughs> yeah i forgot to yeah it's a a free consequence of the freedom convoy since i last saw you I single-handedly dragged all of the transport trucks out of Ottawa <laughs> with my left hand. Uh, thank God. Yeah, no, I, I, it's just a sort of oversized shirt, I think. Mm. So it's kind of rum, rumpled up. And Also, the attendant that got me up this morning, he just, without me ever bringing this up or asking him, I think he could tell that, you know, I care about my appearance bordering on vain and sorry just a minute you need you need a shower and a moment to fix your hair and that makes you vain correct I think, yes I, I think you're the least vain individual i've ever met yeah the attendant he works really hard he like tries to cover up my chest strap with my shirt i didn't know it was like taboo for your chest strap to show it's not and it's not something i've ever been like can you cover my chest strap but he does it and i i never like Leave it open. I want people to see it. It's is it like somebody's thong showing, like through their Lululemons? No, but I remember like in grade school when it was picture day, I would always ask to take my chest strap off because they didn't want my strap in my pictures. What? Who didn't want your strap in your pictures? I didn't. Oh, you oh that's different. Okay. I thought you had weird Catholic school teachers that were like, you have to sit up straight on your own, Tony. No, it was more of just like, maybe if you take my strap off, people won't know I'm sitting in a wheelchair. It's like, if you don't take your strap off, you're going to get a different strap. <laughs> Corporal punishment. I didn't have any... Did you ever have detention? I did, yeah. In grade eight one year, uh, my math teacher accused me of cheating on a trigonometry test, so she gave me detention. Oh, and were you? Tony. Jamie, this is a forum for you to come clean. She thought I was exploiting my individual education plan to use extra time on my test uh, in a day when there was a supply teacher in the class. 
So she thought that I waited out the test in order to study for a bit in between periods and then use my extra time to ace the test, which was a totally uh, unfounded accusation. She was like, she thought you cheated. I'm so confused. Maybe she saw what I had on the paper or the teacher indicated what I had done on the paper before and what I had done after. And she didn't like the amount of the test that I completed in my extra time. She thought it was uh, an indication that I had cheated. Like you got everything wrong and you went to the bathroom and got everything right. <laughs> well, I didn't get everything right. The whole the whole point of it was that I performed poorly, so something was up. That's strange. I actually also, in university, I got sent to the dean's office because they thought I cheated on my test. It was terrifying. How the hell would they have even deduced you cheating? Actually, like... It was pretty fair on them to think that I was cheating because uh, I also, like you, had a like a special accommodations or whatever. So I got to write my tests on the computer and everyone else had to write them by hand. Right. But certain parts of this test were done on the computer because it was a programming test. Right. And there was one question that came up and it was like, uh, something about the code and the output of the code. And I noticed on the desktop the very same code parser that we used in class was installed on this test-only machine. And it would seem... it's The, the kind of computer where they really only install software on it that you're going to need for the test. Right. Okay. So I saw it there and I was like, oh, okay, I'll use this because that seems like they must be needing it for this question. Yeah. And I started doing it and then the proctor comes by and he's like, are you allowed to be using that software? And I was like, uh, I think so. And he's like, just stop for a second and I'm going to call your professor. So I'm like, okay. So I like backed up, like put my hands behind my head, like, I'm not resisting arrest. Wow. And they called the prof. The prof is like, no, he's not supposed to be using that. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't really far. Like, I didn't get any answers out of it. I'll just close it and then continue. And he's like, no, no. You have to, like, pause what you're doing. So they basically, like, wrote a note. I had to stop writing. And then a few days later, I had to have a meeting with the prof and the dean basically being like, I didn't cheat on purpose. This is what happened. And they believed me and they gave me a warning, basically. Wow, that's insane. It was really scary. So we should explain to our listeners, like what Anthony means by a code parser is basically like Microsoft Word for code, but it's something that can assist you with syntax and formatting. So like that's the whole reason behind using it is that it helps take care of uh, certain minutia of development that a lot of developers typically don't want to think about. Yeah. And so just by leveraging that, the, like the features of that word processor for code, Tony could be accused of cheating. Yeah, it was wild because the dean was very strict and he obviously, you know, they have to have a zero, zero tolerance policy on plagiarism or cheating but um he was just like be careful because if we see that this becomes like a pattern for you basically if you do it again you're expelled and you can't come back here 
That's insane. Yeah. Especially considering that the software was freely available on the machine. That was a strange part because, yeah, if I was on a lab computer, I would be like, okay, well, I don't know that. But it was a computer specifically tailored for tests. And it's not common that people would take development tests in the environment that I was in. So it just seemed like it was basically tailored for me for this test. Right. That totally makes sense. Yeah, it was uh, a terrifying mistake. It's reasonable to assume that your test environment would mimic that of your peers. So if you have the software, then so does everyone else. You don't yeah. have an advantage, therefore you're not cheating. Yeah. But it may, it may, be, it may have been obscure enough a situation that they didn't explicitly say in the test that you can't use an integrated development environment. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so you're not a cheater and everything turned out fine. And I get that they have to be pretty strict with that stuff because I know like when I did TA work, did you do TA in your master's? No. No. I did TA for 3D animation and programming, two different courses. And 3D animation, it's kind of hard to cheat. Do people know that TA means teacher, teacher's assistant? Oh, yeah. Basically, you mark people's tests. Yeah, it doesn't And sometimes like... you run labs. Right. I caught a decent amount of people plagiarizing. Really? Yeah. The plagiarizing assignments? Yeah, either from each other or from solutions online. Wow. But I luckily, just as the TA, I just pass it off to the professor and they have to handle it. And so I they... didn't have to like intervene i just had to report it i was accused of plagiarism once in my third year advanced uh, database structures course and i actually took my like my raw like written queries like to the professor and showed him all my notes and then compared it with the final document i was like i didn't cheat it just happened to be one of those assignments where the solution was so uh rigid specific yeah yeah it was so rigid that like the difference between someone cheating and or someone copying and not could be like almost imperceptible. Yeah, it is hard sometimes. I uh, with three D animation, the only real cheating you can do is taking something from online, mm. uh, so you can get a model from the internet, and that would be considered plagiarism as opposed to inspiration. It's plagiarism because you're not you're. It's literally just copy paste. You're not doing the work and making the steps to get to the same goal. Fair enough, fair enough. So you're not doing the assignment even. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we're into the weeds. We are, but that's fine. Have you ever pushed your chair into a big pile of weeds? Yeah, one time I was off-roading at my friend's farm. Why? And Because it's fun. Okay. And it was a lot of fun. We had like like trails through the woods and through like fields and stuff. And I had a different chair back then, but one of my wheels snapped off. Like one of your power chair caster wheels? Yeah, like I hit a rock and the wheel just snapped off and I was just (laughs) balancing on three wheels. What? How did you get home? I was with people. They had to just weigh down the opposite corner of my chair so that I could... Stay balanced. How old were you and where was this? Uh, it was it was like a friend's farm, 
property. I was, I don't know, early teens. Tony, if you were able-bodied, you'd have been like some kind of like a speed demon, daredevil-esque stunt driver motherfucker. I think maybe. Yeah, because like I, I am a thousand percent more conservative than you in my power chair. Like that's insane. I can't even imagine. This is the perfect segue into today's episode because we have talked in the past about how you think my passion for sport and playing sport is obnoxious and ridiculous. It's not obnoxious. It's just surprising. It's something that I I like to unpack. We could definitely go back and find (laughs) where you've been like, just go and light a fan in your hair. Pretty sure you said that exact thing once. Oh, well, I've never lost like, a caster in a cornfield with a bunch of friends. You haven't lived. <laughs> it does sound really fun. It is fun. It was fun. So today we watched Murderball, which is a documentary about quadriplegic or paraplegic rugby. So people in manual chairs playing rugby. And, you know, last week you wanted to introduce me and show me your affinity for Frasier. And I appreciated that. (laughs) I now say that I have seen some episodes of Frasier and I enjoyed them. And I'll probably continue to watch Frasier. And I wanted to show you into my world of fast-paced, daredevil, adrenaline, sport. Yeah. But it's not just that you're not afraid of, you know... uh physical danger (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you don't really have a hyper competitive personality no it's just a thrill yeah well okay i get that like you have a very healthy attitude for somebody who who aspires to partake in competitive sport like i don't want to hurt myself and i'm not gonna go out of my way when i play hockey for example and someone's coming at me and i know I'm the only thing between them and the ball. But I see that glint in their eyes that they're getting to that ball no matter what I'm in the way or not. I'm going to move because I'm not there to flip my chair over just so you don't make a play. But I think I've told this story before, but I played one game of floor hockey with your floor hockey league. And I was astounded at the level of aggression. Yeah. Uh, like I, by aggression, I mean, not in the conduct of the players, like everyone was polite and, and good. And it was a, it was a healthy atmosphere, but I was shocked at how quickly everyone was driving their fucking chairs. Yeah. It's like a four contact sport. Yeah. They were driving their chairs as though they had like a motion specialties attendant at their beck and call, like whenever, and the loss of a foot pedal meant nothing. And the loss of a of a a gearbox meant nothing and just you know maintenance could be done in between periods in tournaments that's the case they actually do have a technician on site they have like battery chargers on each bench so you can keep charged jesus that sounds really cool yeah like i like just the idea of a professionally managed environment specifically tailored to disabled athletes it's so, like the thought of it is so endearing to me, but it really shouldn't be endearing. It should just be like, yeah, like 
I should have sports to play. Well, it's endearing because you're part of a community. And yeah. everyone wants to be part of something. And you want to feel included. And so you, you really do feel included in a sport like this. Like I play COVID excluded. I play on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you get to see all your friends. There's a big social aspect. But then beyond that, it, it is very cool when you get there and you need your stick attached to your chair and they have everything they need to do that for you. They're prepared. You know, the the rules are tailored specifically to the sport. So there are wheelchair-related rules, like ramming is a rule, and the, the definition of the rule is based on the foot plates of the chair. So it's wait, very, wait, is ramming forbidden, or it, like there's a specific way to ram? You can hit other people, but if you hit them with your foot plates, like sort of like a T-bone, situation that is a penalty but you can you can like hit people side by side like reel to reel basically and you can like push them to the boards um but there there are limits like you can't ride someone into the boards because you don't want to hurt people no ideally but you can there is a degree of contact allowed and integrated into the game I remember when I played, there was this dude who was very well-seasoned, super experienced. I'm pretty sure he had his chair uh, calibrated so that all the max speed metrics were overclocked. And yeah. and he had uh, no limb like after both of his knees. And he was driving like somebody who was not afraid to shatter his shins. And it fucking terrified me. Yeah. I was like, I, I can't do this. I know you were talking about that guy was actually my roommate for a while and he taped his stick to his arm. So it was like he was the stick, which was terrifying because if you get his stick caught in your wheel, he kind of freaks out because you could easily just like twist his arm off yeah, or, like, oh, or pull him out of his chair. Well, that's the risk he takes for fucking taping his stick yeah. to his uh, arm yeah like he thinks he's some kind of hockey cyborg he was so good though he doesn't play anymore mm-hmm. he was so good at hockey um but yeah people have modified their own wheelchairs to go faster one guy installed a computer fan in front of his wheelchair uh, motor to keep it cool so it could go higher faster that's ridiculous. Yeah, it was, it's, it was it's so fun. so fucking reckless. Like, I I'm supposed to think that's badass, and I guess part of me does. But like, man, I'm gonna try to introduce you to the passion. I just my my scooter in university, even though it was called the fucking fortress, it was more like the. Uh, Don't you forget me. Your scooter was <laughs> it. It was. I may as well have. Uh, moved around Carlton on a fucking unicycle. You were basically on a wakeboard balancing on top of a medicine ball. Yeah. I'd pull up in my scooter beside a couple of power chair wheelies and they'd look at me like, what are you doing here? One time I saw a door close quickly and your scooter blew over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My scooter was a pile of shit. It was so bad. I'm so glad you you got out of that. 
Um, could you imagine if I was still driving that piece of shit? Well, we wouldn't be doing this podcast. I, yeah, we wouldn't be. I would not be cool enough. I'm a scooter loser. Because the, the whole content would just be me being like, when are you getting a new chair? <laughs> That's not a solution. I thought you had a disability. Don't you solve these problems? <laughs> but yeah, so murder ball, which is way more intense than hockey that I play. Well, it's also kind of like it's a true life documentary about a bunch of people who play rugby. Um, but it's also framed as though rugby is an extreme sport, like in a wheelchair. Well, rugby context. is an extreme sport. Okay, I, I, I get it. I, I sort of believe that. But I'm just saying that I think the movie embellishes a little bit how intense the sport is. Well, the movie is also centered around this Joe guy who is a very intense person yeah. on and off the floor. Yeah. So even when he's off court, He's a pretty intense guy. and Okay, who is Joe, though, apart from being intense? Joe is the sort of central character of this documentary. Basically, he was, for a long time, a very, very good sort of famous murder ball player. Yeah. He got really, really good, but then eventually sort of aged out of his prime. And other people came in and took his spot on the on the team. He was competing in the Paralympics and everything. And then eventually he aged out. He got upset, ended up trying to sue his way back onto the team, which didn't work. So he moved to Canada and started coaching the Paralympic rugby team Canada. So the best way I can think to describe Joe is he's kind of like, first of all, he's he has polio. So he's an old school wheelie. Um, he's been disabled his whole life. And uh, he had a very abusive father uh, who was a, a police officer. And he, Joe, sort of casually dismisses his own verbal abuse of his son on account of the fact that his police officer dad used to hit him quite often. But he sort of vibrates with an intensity, like an uncomfortable intensity. He's a bit like a disabled Gordon Ramsay without a sense of humor. And he very rarely like reaches out to his players to connect with them. So he's actually quite unlikable. They show his son through this documentary. Yeah. And he puts his son really on the back burner for basically the entirety of this narrative. And it's so heartbreaking because the son seems like a genuinely nice kid who just wants his father's affection. For sure. And never really seems to get it. It's They, they almost play it for comedy how uh, removed Joe is from his parental obligations because he's so intently focused on crafting this perfect rugby, rugby team to beat the United States, to beat the the team that basically snubbed him. It's pretty fascinating to frame so much of this documentary around Joe because I would say uh, even in 2002, not just in the present moment, he is sort of a villain. And the movie 
uh, is trying to be this arc where he um, sort of gradually uh, puts his love of sport in context and uh, um, a major health event prompts him to take a step back from coaching and to be a better father. And you get a chance to see what uh, better parenting looks like from the point of view of a guy in a wheelchair. Again, I guess I'm a broken record. Just this idea that he's a bit of a of a deadbeat dad as a wheelie is fascinating to me. Yeah, I loved how raw everyone was in this documentary. They didn't filter or gloss over the personalities at play. No. In fact, that was kind of the highlight. For me or, as well, for me as well. Yeah, it was it was more about look at these pro athletes, these sort of like hardcore, pretty intense, tough people playing a pretty intense, tough sport. And they are obviously in manual chairs playing with different levels of ability. Uh, it, it really sort of focuses on that. I want to sort of talk about how it started because right away it kind of sucks you into this narrative by just cold opening on one of the players getting up in the morning, getting himself ready. And yeah. I'm sure you could relate. He was basically there just like pulling his pants on for, you know, an able-bodied eternity. Oh man. Uh, it was a great opening scene because it, it's like this um, manual chair wheelie gets up and he is paralyzed, but you haven't got any of the details of his disability yet. And you just watch him, put on pants and a shirt. And he does the thing that I do, which is to sort of haphazardly pick up my disobedient legs and like flop them into my pants and sort of shape the pants around my legs slowly until I'm able to stand up and pull them up around my waist and feel like a dressed human being. And it's, it's like the, the way that it, the camera lingers on this guy getting dressed it's like he's lifting free weights, like he's doing a workout. It's exactly how I feel, deeply, deeply frustrated. And this guy has leg mass, like he has a muscular body, uh, yeah. uh, a big top half, especially uh, stereotypically speaking, but he still kind of struggles. And it goes right from getting dressed to him uh, working on his his rugby chair and there's a distinction between his day chair and his rugby chair. The rugby chair looks like it looks like something out of Mad Max Fury Road. And that's actually a direct comparison made in the film. But not only that, it's like it's kind of rusted out and it looks uh, like you, you'd need a tetanus shot if you accidentally scraped yourself with it. Uh, like a rusted out piece of workout equipment uh, at the bottom of an old gym in 1965. Like it's, it's really rustic, but also very angular and clearly meant for like destruction. I loved it. I love those. They're, it's just like a custom welded piece of aluminum. Yeah. It's perfectly suited for each player. Yeah. That's one thing I've always sort of, uh, struggled with with my hockey is that I have to play in my own chair mm -hmm. and for a couple of reasons I don't like that one is I only have one chair some people do have a chair dedicated just for hockey so they're not they're less afraid 
to bash it up and maybe break parts. But uh, it's my daily driver, so I need it to work at the end of the game. Um, But then beyond that, I can't make, you know, super specific modifications to it. So when I'm picking a new chair, I'm obviously focusing on what I'm going to need on a daily basis. Whereas when you have your own chair dedicated to a sport, you can choose exactly what you need to optimize yourself in that sport, which actually European hockey sort of does for for European power power hockey. They have yeah. these specialized chairs with like uh, bumper cages around them so they can more easily hit people and they maneuver a lot better and stuff. Uh, every chair I've ever had in my life was ergonomically fitted to suit my body at the time. Mm-hmm. So they always look abundantly uh, uh, comfortable, almost condescendingly so. And these these rugby chairs in this movie, they look like you need a pair of metaphorical balls just to sit in them. You know, like it's <laughs> like this isn't your mother's chair. It's Yeah, they're hardcore. No- <laughs> Not to discount mothers, uh, you you know what I mean. Um, I honestly think like you you could be a pretty nice sort of casual, empathetic guy who doesn't really like to get his hands dirty, yeah. isn't really into any sort of contact, you know, just wants to chill and watch Netflix, and then you get into this chair, and some primal part of you comes out where yeah. you're just like. I need to start bashing things with this chair. Yeah, I need to become a member of the jackass crew or something. It's like a way to externalize that pent-up rage that you might have if you are newly injured and you're frustrated at all these things you've, quote, lost and that you're not able to do anymore. You can sort of take that out in physical force against people. Mm-hmm. It's like a... Everything else in your life assumes that you're fragile except this chair. Right. I have, I find this notion of disabled chair monogamy to be still pretty funny, though. Do you, are, do you feel like you're cheating on your chair sometimes? With- like when I'm sitting on, the cu- on a couch and I see my chair like across the room? Just sitting there like, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that's kind of a waste of my chair. I would feel incredible to to sit on a couch yeah yeah i remember i was in montreal a few years ago <laughs> this is just going to be a story about how somebody put you on a love seat and it sure was the, is. <laughs> and it was the best evening of your life yeah we went on a trip it was <laughs> me and an ex and she wanted to cuddle so she lifted me out of my chair put me on the couch beside her and i've never felt more free. Oh my it God. Looking at my chair being like, I don't need you. That would be the cheesiest moment in a very bad, like disability movie. <laughs> We'd have to be very careful how we wrote that. So it didn't come off as like intolerably cheesy. The thing is, I'll need you to help me with the direction there because I'm kind of a sucker for incredibly cheesy. I like rom-coms. I love rom-coms. Yeah, like there, there has to be like a be- it can't can't feel sentimental. Why? No, I like I'm thinking of like theory of everything. How every fucking moment in that movie is tugging at your heartstrings. But if I'm not watching that on, through a critical lens, 
it still makes me feel stuff. No, please, Tony. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you went to Montreal and the best part was sitting on a love seat in some rando's apartment? Yeah, with Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. This and and the whole thing with the chair making someone feel less vulnerable happened maybe like two thirds of the way through the documentary where a newly injured quad gets into the chair and immediately wants to start like even just lightly bashing things with it. And his whole circle of care in the hospital is like, you can't do that. You're still way too fragile. Mm. The, um, so ju- just a little bit more context uh, the person that Tony's talking about, um, according to the film, is paralyzed only four months before filming. And so the, like this character is kind of like uh, the one sort of origin story that takes place in real time of a wheelie. There's quite a few origin stories in this film, actually, at least three or four of what of who these people were before that before the wheelchair and what they've become afterwards and how they've dealt with it and how it's sort of morphed their identities um and um this kid that tony's talking about spends the majority of the film in a rehab hospital uh just kind of exercising and stretching and learning to put his shoes on and uh coming to terms with the reality of his new situation and um the whole his whole thing like there's a there's there is a kind of feeling of artifice of the whole thing for some reason, like I found this part of the movie kind of annoying. Specifically, that scene or that person altogether. Well, just that they're like setting him up as this care as this guy who's like never heard of rugby, and like the movie is going to have this B plot where we see his whole suffering for like twenty two minutes of realizing that he's now a wheelie, and then we're waiting for the payoff moment of him realizing that rugby will give him back a piece of his of his real self or something, and it just kind of felt cheesy to me see again, this is why I love cheesy because I like this moment to me. I really related to those moments where you're like because i you know I never injured myself I'm not quadriplegic by the definition of you know getting a neck injury but my disability progresses pretty quickly over time so I've lost a lot of abilities and after each loss there is somewhat of like a grieving cycle that I have to go through where I'm like wow I really enjoyed playing guitar was an example I really liked playing guitar and then pretty suddenly I stopped being able to play and being able to find the next thing that I could do. I think it was actually skiing or maybe sailing, being able to find that thing and then just sink my energy into that did help me process that loss. So I I relate to that. I I get it too. Like uh, obviously on a smaller scale for me, like realizing that I can't really bike as much as usual I find I found replacement exercises that once I kind of realized that there was a way that I could expend my excess energy and stress, it was like a huge, huge relief um, because apparently it's really, really important to me to have or to retain a certain amount of physical autonomy, you know, however healthy that is. I don't know, but 
I, I get it. And I was going to say, like, it, it's not like I, I did like this character, this guy in rehab. I, I liked uh, them showing him in real time, like working with a physiotherapist and him um, getting dressed and just sort of the shots of him in this in this physio environment. There was also another scene where he goes to he goes to some new environment. I don't know if it's home or another physio place or another rehab facility or something. But he gets settled into this new room and you can see he just kind of gets pretty impatient with where his life is at, sort of yeah. realizing it, it gets a bit overwhelming. Well, his bathroom is not a his bathroom is like pretty inaccessible and he can't access his uh like his closet very easily so he's like this doesn't work for me yeah and then he it sort of makes him overwhelmingly realize his limitations and i remember when we were watching that you thought maybe it was like a little bit forced or or like plot driven or you know maybe sort of inserted in a maybe manipulative way yeah it felt a little produced or a little engineered because I figured he would have been thinking about these realities for quite some time. Right. But there, I also was thinking, you know, if you're in, if you get injured, you get rushed to the hospital, you get all these surgeries and everything, and then you're healing, you have nurses and physios and doctors looking after you. The hospital environment, even the rehab environment up until that point, is pretty catered to your needs. So you don't necessarily even notice your own limitations because those needs are being met and those limitations sort of fade away as a result. And then yeah, you get thrust true. into this environment where you sort of, to a degree, are left to fend for yourself. And yeah. so I can definitely see how all of that can come crashing down. I had a similar moment the first night Anytime I've moved a significant place, like when I moved from home to Carlton, I had that moment the first night where I was like, can I do this? Am I ready for living completely away from my parents without their safety net? And then when I moved out of Carlton, after getting accustomed to that, and I moved into this building, the person I was dating at the time was like, hey, you got your all settled in. I'm going to head home. And I was like, you're what? And I, they were like, yeah, I'm going to go home for the night. I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. And I was like, no, like I, I'm not ready to be alone with this. I remember having like the exact same experience. Firstly, like the first morning that I had a like an 8.30 class and I had to leave my my residence and go to class and I couldn't find Southern Hall. Because it, oh, it, yeah. like, it's like hidden away in the bowels of the far reaches of the fucking campus. Yeah. And I was getting so stressed out. I remember like driving up to one of the tunnel cars, like one of the maintenance guys, and like asking him to just point me in the direction of Southern Hall. And it must have looked like I was about to like fucking cry or something, man. Like it, I was terrified. Yeah. And I remember like going through a kind of short period of of sadness or stress or something in first year, like in that first month before I built a kind of camaraderie with my uh with my residence mates and like started building a life. 
I was like, I, I'm just a guy in a room right now, like going to math classes. This is kind of crazy. Like I'm going to do this for the next eight months and then times three after that. What the fuck? Yeah. And I started writing. I started journaling. And the stupid thing was I accidentally added my documents folder to DC++. <laughs> Or do people know what DC++ is? DC++ is just like a file sharing program like uh, LimeWire or Torrance or Kazaa. But there, yeah. th- there was a local university instance and it was over a very fast internet connection. So the whole point was to be able to download me- media off it and not have to pay for basic cable, which as a starting, starving student is very important. So... Uh, but I accidentally added DC++ to my share fo- or sorry, my documents folder to my shared folder. <laughs> and then my friend who knew me and like knew what user I had in DC++, he fucking found my journaling folder. Oh, no. Yeah. And he was a good guy. Like he was like, he wasn't a cruel person or anything, but he certainly did. <laughs> print out a few of those journals <laughs> <laughs> and one night on a fucking Thursday, like a thirsty Thursday, he fucking like read them back to me. <laughs> like, you know, while laughing and, and whatever, like I love, I, I love the guy, but anyway, um, so that fucking happened and I totally relate to your sense of isolation and sadness. And yeah. this movie tries to like, get at that and i think it does but i also think there's a degree of manufacturing because it partly expects its audience to be able-bodied and so they would be having these realizations at pace with this semi-fictional documentary subject is what i'm trying to say yeah that's probably true like they probably did market it to an able-bodied audience but even though i am a disabled person there were parts of this that I think I identified more as an able-bodied viewer than a disabled viewer just because their experiences were different enough from my own. Interesting. The other thing is, I guess, the tone of the documentary is sort of this, like, macho man sport documentary. So it doesn't really give a lot of space at times for those more vulnerable, emotional epiphany moments yeah but i will say anytime it has a talking head with one of the players like who isn't like joe the coach yeah i um i was expecting like some pretty like hackneyed uh sentiments but instead i found them to be quite genuine i really enjoyed it actually yeah so i want to play some of them but i also want to say while i was watching this and some of these talking head moments came up it was interesting because you and I both have disabilities from birth. So our whole yeah. life has been disabled. As we both talked about, like our experiences have changed and grown over the years. And maybe we've evolved and learned more about our disabled experience or maybe become almost more disabled in those experiences. But what was interesting is how all of these people in this documentary had acquired injuries so they've been able-bodied for a decade of their life or at least like a a dozen years for the most part some of them were born with disabilities etc but for those who acquired an injury it was refreshing and 
comforting, I guess, to see and hear the recounts of those more vulnerable disability moments where they're uh-huh. talking about strangers' interactions with them or like the worldview and perception of of sex and disability, for example. And so hearing those experiences shared between someone in our situation, like a from birth, full-life disability, and someone who's acquired a disability was pretty refreshing and made me feel really connected and I related a lot. So here's the first instance that came up in the documentary, uh, which we've both talked about probably countless times. I've been out in clubs, I've been out all over the place, and people will come up to me and they'll shake my hand and say, oh, it's good to see you out. And I like, I look at them like, good to see me out. You know, like, where am I supposed to be? In a closet, hanging out? What I can do, what probably people don't think I can do, is I can cook and I can drive. I might not be a great cook. I might not be a great driver, but I can do both. So, yeah, you can hear right there in their voices that they are speaking truth. And that whole idea, like, great to see you out. I, oh, my God, that speaks to my soul. It speaks to my balls. It speaks to my brain and every part of my body. I don't know. The times I've gotten annoyed when someone's like, good for you. And then I get annoyed in my less... Uh, aware, able-bodied friend will be like, why are you annoyed by that? And it's because I already know the steps that they took in their head to get to that good for you. And the implication of what that statement means is not a polite good for you. It's a condescending good for you. It's so rude. I'd much rather say someone, I'd much rather someone look at me and say, fuck you, than good for you. Yeah, that's refreshing. (laughs) Here's another clip. Yeah, let's do another clip. People say some of the dumbest things. Like, I'll be at the grocery store loading the groceries into my car, and people like, and then I go to get my car, and like, well, do you need help in your car? It's like, well, I wouldn't have come to the grocery store if I couldn't get back in my car. Another great point. Yeah, like, I'm going to use that. Good fucking point. Yeah, I I, I definitely, like, one time I went to the, the doctor's office, it was Emerge. I went to Emerge. And they were like, are you here to see a doctor? And I was like, oh, is this not the bowling alley? <laughs> and she laughed and was like, what, what do you need? But like, I don't know, maybe she was just being polite. But it <laughs> felt like one of those questions where it's like, do you think I'm lost? Like, I'm in the hospital. You think I just couldn't find a vending machine anywhere else? Actually, that would be a hilarious game to play, like in some wheelie-themed game show, being polite or being a dick. And then <laughs> <you> would, <laughs> like, yeah, we could we could come up with a punch. We could, yeah. Do you want me to hang that on your chair for you? <laughs> Cash or credit? <laughs> the, the distressing thing about this whole like these repeated sentiments and the truth of them is that this movie was made in 2003 and we are currently in 2022 in a state of relative wokeness of people being aware of the, of the variety of experiences and the manner in which our media sort of fails to represent us. And yet 
like these criticisms of the reaction to disability are still so incredibly fucking salient. Yeah. It's like it's 2003. Like this movie is dated in several ways that we can talk about, but surely to God in its in its portrait of disabled experience, it is as relevant as could be. Yeah, that that was also something I noticed. It doesn't feel like the needle has moved much. (laughs) And it's great that it's moved for like, well, you know, I can't speak to the other experiences, but from where I'm sitting, it feels like it's moved for a lot of other minorities. Mm -hmm. But it still doesn't feel like we've made a whole lot of progress. I wonder if there will ever be a point where society will assert that we are post-disabled and in <laughs> fact we are not at all at all. Yeah. It, I was having a conversation with my hairdresser the other day and he was asking me a lot of questions about like my disability, are there medications, you know, like how do I eat, can I chew, like very specific questions and when i got talking about it i realized you know how i was talking to you about the conversation i had with my neurologist and the medications that are on the market i'm probably one of if not the last generation of people with my disability that will be born with it and then end up having symptoms or like being in a wheelchair Does that feel good or sad? I don't think it bothers me. I think it's kind of (laughs) cool. It just, it made me think of that because you said like a post-disabled world. Mm. And it's, there's something very surreal and freeing. It doesn't feel bad at all, but there's been definitely surreal. I think is the best word I can think of to think about just the idea that I'm sort of living this experience that no one else is might be just in history books for a while dang you know what i mean you should like uh contact like um some sort of uh, encyclopedia of physiology and ask them if they want to like do a paid profile of you i actually did ask the neurologist if i could donate my body when i die that's dire dying (laughs) Uh uh-huh it's actually a very complicated process. Basically, you have to die in hospital, and then there's a bunch of medical loops to jump through. You have to die in a specific way? Yeah. She didn't tell me I couldn't do it, but she basically told me, like, it might not happen. But anyway, back to the documentary. One thing I really liked about the documentary, you kind of touched on it already, is that they weren't afraid to talk about the negative aspects of these people's personality traits. And so often we talk about how disability is glorified on screen. Mm -hmm. It's very sentimental. It's glossy. It's happy. Makes you feel good. This movie didn't do that. This movie was raw. There were characters I didn't, characters, there were people that I didn't really like. Mm Mm-hmm just based on them probably being dickish. Yeah, and the movie was better for it. Right, and mm-hmm. and people were very open about, even, even the talking heads talking about different people. Here's an example, and then we can discuss. 
you want us to call security? My hypothesis on Mark was he was very much an asshole before he was in the wheelchair, so any attempt to try to point to the wheelchair or the accident as the cause of his grumpiness would be an utter hoax. <laughs> Hilarious. It's so funny, yeah. And that's one of many like very, very candid takes on the personality profiles of key people in this movie. Yeah. First of all, it gives the audience room to dislike the, the people, which is exactly what we want. We want yeah. you to be able to dislike a disabled person. Uh-huh. You should be able to. Some of us are not good people. And might have sources of anger or resentment that are completely independent of our disabled experience, just like a regular asshole. <laughs> I've thought about this a lot in the context of various types of disabilities. It's hard, maybe impossible, to find out or figure out where a source of someone's personality comes from. Mm -hmm. If you are a rude person with a disability, it's very easy for people to be like, yeah, yeah, he's rude, but he also is disabled, so you have to give him some slack. Right. And maybe that's true. Up to a point. Maybe his disability makes him rude, but maybe his rudeness is a product of something completely separate or a product of the way he's socialized as a result of his disability. And, and if that's the case, you're not giving him any benefit to giving him that pass every time because that just gives him more room to grow in that negative direction. I still haven't fully fleshed out how I feel about this, but I've met a lot of disabled people with various disabilities, physical, mental, across all spectrums, growing up in foster care and whatever. Some of them just weren't good people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing to discuss. Yeah, to let that be uh, out in the open is progress. <laughs> and maybe it's true that some combination of chemical imbalances has led them to have a disability and also led them to be a, a, a rude person. And maybe that isn't their fault. Maybe that's a natural occurrence. But the fact still sometimes remains. And it, it is hard to separate the two because we can't really know nature versus nurture and how much of it is their fault or their responsibility or even within their ability to change. Can I confess something? How long has it been since your last confession? Oh, it would have been like Ash Wednesday in 1997. Why has it been so long since your last confession? Because that was the last time my Catholic school made me confess something. For some reason, after grade three, it was like, you don't have to confess stuff no more. Okay, confess. <laughs> you were saying that we shouldn't let someone's personality flaws be ascribed to their disability or their negative uh, personality traits? Not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. The thing is, I kind of want people to ascribe my like slowness <laughs> to my disability. Like well, if it's taking me forever to do something, I extra specially want them to be like, oh, it's because he's disabled. Yeah. And that's a thing. Like because of what I know about CP and, and you, <laughs> I think that's a fair rationalization that that 
slowness, as you say, can often be attributed to your CP. Yeah. And that is the case. And so it is really hard to draw that line of where you are just like, yeah, but he has CP, so it's fine. I don't know. Again, I still haven't fully figured this out because we both know people. Let's use CP as an example. You and I both know people we dislike with CP. Maybe some of the things we dislike about them are a product of their CP. But does that mean we have to like them? I'm I'm sort of of the mind that a lot of times when when the negative uh, personality trait of another individual offends us, it's usually because it reminds us of some negative personality trait within ourselves yeah. that we are either consciously or unconsciously sort of acknowledging that is part of us. And yeah. the, like that person reminds us that we are a little bit fucked up. And then so we, we cope with that in, instead of looking inward and just like trying to either be better or forgive ourselves. Uh, we just sort of project it onto them and be like, fuck that asshole. Yeah. Like I used to get unreasonably mad at my roommate in university for flooding the bathroom and then like just like leaving like musky, dirty laundry like all over the place. But if there was anything I was more guilty of, it was those two things. <laughs> mm. It wasn't fair at him, like toward him at all ever, but it always fired me up, man. Like, yeah, you're right. Like in, in an instance like that, it's probably more closely aligned with your own stuff and you being conscious of the fact that that's something you want to improve on. They do that and it makes you feel like they're not improving on that. And that's sort of a offensive to your own progress. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't like someone just because they're disabled. Right. And I think that's that's a fair statement. I, I think so too. And I think I think this movie is actually arguing that. Agreed. Like like effectively and knowingly. One sort of aspect of it that is nuanced for me is that it so it's always kind of asserting the value of competition and the validation of meaningful competition, especially mm-hmm. for a disabled person who's continually told that they they should not even bother to compete in any way whatsoever. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why I love video games is that it gives me a virtual platform upon which to kick my friends' asses uh, in games and like forms of sport that they respect me for kicking their asses in. Yeah, I can't talk right now, but you know what I'm saying. No, that's clear. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's always talking about the value of sport, which it's a fucking sport movie. So good. Yeah. But then it's also kind of making the argument or it's painting a portrait of the novelty of a disabled locker room. Right. Uh, So there's all kinds of scenes of like of like rugby players like in the locker room playing cards or gambling or talking about their favorite parts of a woman's body. And they're laughing and they have a sense of humor and they're all candid and they're all three dimensional individuals. But it seems to be saying like to the the male audience like hey bro like these guys are bros too yeah i kind of like there's a part of me that if i was 14 and was watching this i would be like thank you uh because i'm always making that fucking argument to myself and to people i'm 
I'm in the process of befriending. I'm not arguing with new friends, but I'm trying to persuade them that I'm cool or something when I'm 14 or 15. I actually remember like having a, like a kind of a panic or, or anxiety around. It was important for me to have the latest good video game because when we were kids, 14 and 15 and 16, you could get the guys, you could get the gang to gather around Grand Theft Auto and pass the controller around and it would be a great evening. And like it was definitely a way of keeping your social life alive and of of remaining like in the guy group, like if you had the latest cool thing. And I know that that wasn't like the cornerstone of my appeal to my friends, but it definitely felt like, especially in the summer, when everyone's off playing basketball or soccer or or doing some shit, like one way to involve Jamie, like, hey, well, you know, we can go over to Jamie's and play multiplayer Halo, you know, after we're done doing the physical stuff. It's a way to relate to you, but it's also a way to give you equal footing with all of your peers. Yeah, because like they they like I can kick their ass in a thing that they want to be good at. So yeah. if I can kick their ass, then like like I'm in it, too. So yeah. they forget the shit where they don't think I can compete. Right. Well, you, you spoke to the sort of disabled locker room feel of this. And and I, I also really related to that. It's something that I was, we've talked about this probably a handful of times already, but I really value friendships with people with disabilities because that pretext is gone and you're able to rib each other and you know, do that thing that guys do when they're hanging out in a locker room where you're just shooting the breeze, but your disability is not one of the things off the table to engage, you know? And that's one thing I love, like, that's something about wheelchair hockey that I play. Everyone is doing the same thing. Everyone obviously has a different level of ability and comes at it from a different place. But there's still like this sense of community where we all just sort of get each other in a way that you can't really ever get with able-bodied people. Not to say that you can't have full three-dimensional great friendships with able-bodied people, but there's just like this sort of element to it that, you know, just objectively able-bodied people can't always relate to. Yeah. So when you want to relate through those lenses, you kind of need another disabled person to talk to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that phrase locker room is mired by the 2016 election and everything that Trump brought to the table. But I think when I say it, when, when I'm talking about it in the context of this film, I mean more the movie's attempts to show that there is healthy camaraderie between. Yeah, it could be a locker room. It could be a poker table. Yeah, it's a place where you you hang after the game, so all stresses are gone. You're disarmed, your uniforms are off, and you're sitting around shooting the shit. And yeah. like in a lot of other contexts, it's defined as the, that place without women or something. But that's not what I mean. But that is also another criticism of this movie, which is that it has no disabled... Right, let's not get to that yet. Okay, all right. I knew you were going to bring that up. Well, it should be talked about. I, we will talk about it, but I also want to, well, I want to set the scene of how 
just sort of talking about all of that, the macho man energy that this film does bring. Uh, yeah, this, like, anyone who's ever played Tony Hawk, this movie is trying to be the wheelchair equivalent of Tony Hawk in its tone and music and and the way that it's shot. Like, it's trying to be extreme sports, uh, Gatorade-fueled, like, <laughs> ska band uh, badassery. And I'm not yeah. saying that it fails at that, but it's definitely like a kind of aged aesthetic. Well, it's 18 years old. Mm-hmm, true. This is ours for the taking, boys. This is ours. So tonight, no drinking, go to bed early, and get ready for USA in the finals. Yeah. You got that? All right, boys. Great job. Great job. Great job. Honestly, though, I could see myself playing that music to pump me up during right before a game. Well, yeah, like because it's it's uh, the movie's aesthetic is a refutation of expectations because people in 2003 and people in 2022 don't expect a movie about a group of disabled people to be framed in such a light to have an extreme sports element. It's the contrast of being a paraplegic and also participating in sports that are traditionally hazardous to able-bodied people. Right. That's the whole confluence of ideas at hand. And so it is necessary and it, it, it makes sense. It's, it's cool that a, a movie called murder ball has an aggressive streak. Like I, I like that part of it. The, the, the issue that I have is not like, Okay, first of all, the whole representational aspect of it, there's no reason why the rugby teams can't be co-ed. I don't think there's anything specific to the physical strengths of these male players that would make them necessarily dominate like a, a paralyzed woman. So, Well, okay, so I want to talk about this because you did bring it up a few times while we were watching it and just the fact that there isn't any, I think there's like one or two women in this movie, disabled women. Yeah. And that never bothered me because I don't think that was ever the focus or supposed to be the focus. Like this is about a male Paralympic rugby team. Yeah, I get it. But there's a guy on the team who's dating a disabled woman and she never gets a talking head. That didn't even happen till the very end of the, the show though. I don't even think they started dating until... Right before the world cut it. <laughs> right before production wrapped. Okay, so there might be a logistical element to it, I suppose. I don't know. Like, I think it also has to do with the movie's thesis. It's trying to talk about the like inherent, inherent restorative aspect of rugby sport. And so the, the way that this movie thinks that you are to cope with being disabled is to figure out how to empower yourself physically nonetheless to be like a dominant force on the rugby court or whatever. And so there's a there's a masculine coded solution to disability in this movie, which is why I think it doesn't fe feature female characters because it doesn't sort of fit into their understanding of what is of what can be redemptive about sport and disability. Right, I see what you're saying and I agree with you to an extent. I do think that Hold on, your floor hockey league is co-ed, right? Yeah, but it it's not a Paralympic team. 
But also, I don't think the movie is trying to say, if you want to rehab better, play murder ball. I think it's saying, if you're playing murder ball, I, I don't even think it's, I think it's saying, this is an option for people, and look how much they get out of it. I don't think it's trying to position itself away from femininity. I think it's just shining a spotlight on this brutal, I will agree, masculine, dominant sport. But I don't think it's like done so intentionally. I think it just happened to pick male Paralympic Team USA, male Paralympic Team Canada, and that was the story. So it didn't really focus on the women's side of it. I would love to see an equivalent documentary featuring women athletes. Mm. That would be awesome. I would love to see that. Or even a co-ed team. But I just don't think that's what this was doing. And I don't think that's a fault. Okay. I I can agree with that. There's a whole segment of this movie uh, where the guys talk about how like first of all like the first time they had sex after becoming paralyzed they were talking kind of about why they think and again i found it to be an interesting perspective being someone who used to be able-bodied and then got injured into being disabled and they were talking about why they think women might be interested in them because at first they were sort of wrestling with the idea that Maybe women wouldn't be interested in them, or maybe things just wouldn't function the way they used to, and they might not be able to have sex again. But one of the things one of the guys said was, actually, I think it was one of the girlfriends said it. Speaking of uh, women representation, we did have a couple of girlfriends of the athletes in this documentary which I thought was good because although, again, the documentary I don't think was ever trying to focus on sexuality, it's kind of hard to do this narrative without at least... Yeah, the other half of the equation. Right, and I think just the demographic of people that play murder ball were probably people that were pretty sex positive before their injury. So naturally... (laughs) they probably want to continue sex after injury. And so they're trying to navigate that. Yeah, they're murder balls deep. Yeah, murder balls deep. And so one of the girlfriends of one of the athletes has this quote, which was interesting to say the least. I really think it's curiosity that attracts a lot of girls to quadriplegics and I think maybe also to some extent it's the mothering instinct. I kind of hate that quote to be perfectly honest with you. Why is that? Because nobody wants to fuck someone they want to mother. That's gross. That can't be true. Yeah, the actual term mothering is a bit off-putting, but the Mm -hmm. sentiment I, I understand, like, you know, acts of service being someone's love language, I relate to that. The idea of wanting to care for people, wanting to help someone. I don't think that's unhealthy, but the the term specifically mothering, it's a bit of a landmine. Mm-hmm. The way that sex is talked about in this uh, movie, 
I think is fairly healthy. Yeah. Everything that I said about locker room talk, like it's, I think it's leans on a non-toxic kind of stuff, uh, which is really good. Um, yeah. So um, there's one quote from a young man who talks about, you know, when he first gets out of the hospital, he's sort of really intent on becoming able-bodied. Everybody who gets hurt thinks they're going to walk again. Your mind becomes a bigger disability than physical stuff. I had the idea that I would get better and walk again, so I was kind of just going to hide and kind of deny the whole thing until it went away. I didn't go outside, kind of just... I even got to the point where I got scared to get the newspaper in the morning just because I thought people would look at me, like in the driveway. And just that kind of fed itself. See, that's a testimonial that, again, on the surface seems a little bit stereotypical. But just the way it's delivered by that young dude, like you can tell that it's coming from a very real place. And I also can relate with that disabled denialism because I think that a lot of the things that I did in my 20s, like as a younger man, uh, in the pursuit of physical fitness, I think in my brain I was imagining that at some point I'd be able to walk uh, similar distances as an able-bodied person and like I'd eventually build up leg mass in my calves and in my thighs uh, that would rival that of an able-bodied counterpart. Like that was a kind of uh, aspiration that was constantly in my head, even though I knew it was not realistic. I wanted to impress the um, student support person who helped me exercise in high school. Like he sort of constantly lived on my right shoulder. And then of course I have like my dad in my head being like, you got to do your physiotherapy on a regular basis, Joe. You got to be able to supinate with that left hand and lift your barbells or else you don't know what's going to happen in a number of years. And do you still feel this way? Oh, fucking one million percent. That's why I dread days when I'm inactive. And I know that that's not fair to myself or to my perception of disability. It's still, it's, it doesn't go away. No, it doesn't. And I, I hard relate to this as well because, again, my, my levels of ability are very fluid and changing constantly. So I'm always sort of wrestling with, do I have to accept that I won't be able to do this thing anymore? Or should I be pushing myself to keep it? for as long as I can because there are certain things where you know it's just a byproduct of my degeneration that I'm going to lose certain abilities but I have to remind myself that on some hands in some instances it's okay to just lose that thing and other instances I need to push myself to prolong it by using it more and so it's always this tricky balance of am I in denial of the fact that I'm going to lose this or am I being unrealistic trying to push myself to keep it or do I just have to accept the loss and move forward? The fact is that no no physiotherapy professional or somebody in a kinesiology background or a neuroscientist or a parental authority could could give you an answer there, could make that decision for you. So it's something that is within you entirely. And I think 
for the most part, it is a matter of self-acceptance and of knowing your limits. Right. Luckily, I have had the same physiotherapist for like a decade, over a decade. So she can see my progression. And when I'm losing something new, she's good at being like, yeah, that's just part of the gig. Or she can be like, okay, well, let's find some exercises or some way to keep you going with that. So that's really helpful. She's like, I okay, so in my hand here, I've bunched up 100 popsicle sticks, and I'm just going to shove them down your gullet, yes. and you're going to have to deal with it. It really is that. It's, it's often just like a quality of life assessment. So is the fact that I am losing my finger in my left hand going to really impact my function on a daily basis? And if the answer is no, then focus your energy on something else. Hmm. And that has been a fairly productive way to, to approach it because like my jaw is a good example where if I see that worsening, then I go, these are, I'm going to lose the ability to speak well, open my mouth, chew, eat, you know, maybe even brush my teeth. So that's something to prioritize. For sure. It's like a ridiculous uh, decision to have to make, uh, like yeah. the opportunity cost of, of parts of your body. I mean, if I had 40 hours of physio per week, I would undeniably be more functional than I am now. Uh, let's just get like uh, ridiculously rich and we'll just hire a team of physiotherapists to work out every part of your body. Just all day while I'm working, they're like stretching my arms and stuff. Yeah, you have like a Rube Goldbergian machine of people yeah. behind you just like pumping every muscle. Or maybe we could set it up so my Rube Goldbergian machine is powered by your bike. Oh. So you're on the bike yeah. powering the energy because then we have a we have like a mutual dependence for us to both be physically active because i need you to be powering that bike mm. and you're going to want me to be more active so you're going to want to give me power for my rube goldbergian machine right but then that's like another dimension by which the two of like you and i depend upon each other mm-hmm. and i don't know like the more we add to the mix the more strain could potentially be placed upon the friendship you think so i mean jamie I haven't done my exercises today. Get out of bed. <laughs> you can't, you're not allowed to be depressed. I need to exercise. Um, can we play a clip that's called bike exclamation point? Bikes. All his life, as soon as he was able to get on a tricycle, he's been on wheels. Bicycles, dirt bikes, quads. He loved wheels. Now, one of the favorite things in the world to Keith hurt him. Movies that center around people with acquired disabilities or like uh, big traumatic accidents, they always frame it like this, where it's like, you know, he was the best uh, (laughs) pancake chef in the world. And then one day he was crippled by a pancake. <laughs> and it's like I know 
quite a few quadriplegics that have been crippled by pancakes. <laughs> Pancake cripples? I hope there's a big player <laughs> in, in the really It's game. like, <laughs> I don't hop anymore. <laughs> oh! I wish I could hop. <laughs> I just think it's like kind of silly how like even the documentaries have to have this origin story where it's like, you know, his favorite thing was pineapples. And then one day he became paralyzed. So dumb. Like I'm still trying to make the leap to how that is even remotely the same. Well, like he, he got concussed by an errant pineapple and ended up in a wheelchair. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That happens. It does, yeah. Yeah, happens to the best of us. <laughs> I don't know, like, I I wasn't sure how I felt about this quote either. It definitely stuck out to me. I feel like it's kind of the thing that people do when they are trying to rationalize karma or destiny or fate, where they almost need, like, something to explain the chaos, even if it's just, like, a poetic karmic explanation that mm-hmm. doesn't justify anything it does help people like wrap their head around chaos that is an injury like this yeah something about that irony makes it feel like it it was somehow intentional or right. not out of the chaos of being yeah by the way my friend circle uh recently that i love dearly made me watch jackass 3d in theaters no the the most recent one out of theaters oh jackass 3d yeah yeah. Yeah, they're like jamie like you got to come to jackass 4 and so obviously we have to watch jackass 3d with you and we can watch it at your house so you can't get away from us and so they're like they're like okay you're gonna watch jackass 3d okay we've talked about how you and i both like physical comedy and Whatever is going on in Jackass that makes a lot of people laugh, even people who find the humor distasteful, um, like it is, it, it, there is something, there is something in the secret sauce besides like excrement and spit and whatever else they're throwing at each other. Um, it, there's like a voyeuristic sort of vicarious living that you can do to these people where can you imagine what it would be like to sit yourself down, cover yourself in honey, and then let a bear into the room. Yeah. That's not something that most sane people would agree to find out firsthand, but it is something that if you told them the premise, they're probably going to want to just casually sit by and watch as a bystander. The whole point of Jackass is that it's so, it's so overwhelmingly distasteful that the fact that it can make you laugh uh, while offending all of your all of your sensibilities is like kind of uh, impressive or something. Yeah, but I still what like the entire time I'm watching that movie, I'm thinking like these motherfuckers like why aren't they disabled? Like, and also how come how come they've had so many chances uh, to not be disabled? It's really like quite obnoxious in that sense. I honestly feel like Steve-O would make a pretty good wheelie. <laughs> like, even as a wheelie, Steve-O would be a, a stunt person? Yeah, I think he would sort of 
pave a new path for how you can be a stunt really. He does have that ridiculously irreverent energy, yeah. uh, just utterly fearless. And it seems like it seems like some of the things that he puts himself through in the immediate moment are worse than some aspects of disability itself. Well, we've talked about how both you and I can relate to being risk averse in a lot of ways because there are so many things outside of our control. And so the things that are in our control, we hold on to very closely, don't really let a lot of room for like external change to affect it. But Steve-O is not risk averse. <laughs> Steve-O is the opposite of risk averse. I feel like Steve-O would make a great wheelie. And now that I think about it, I would love to interview Steve-O. I think he would, I think he would just embrace it. I think so. I think you're actually right about that. I keep thinking about Johnny Knoxville, who's essentially like evil Jim Carrey. I I keep thinking about him willfully and constantly allowing large muscular animals to charge at him with like sharp, like, uh, horns. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have my words. And I'm just like, dude, you should, you should be so disabled. Like, fuck you. You think it's almost like flaunting his able-bodied privilege in your face? I kind of do. Like, I know he's not doing it intentionally, but good Lord. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, at like over 50 years old, he lets like full-on bulls like charge at him. And then he fucking laughs. Like he laughs like, ha ha ha, I'm not disabled. Ha ha ha, I'm still alive. Ha ha ha, life is good. Ha 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 ha, I'm Johnny Knoxville. Ha ha. <laughs> Again, though, I think... They're all probably pretty accepting of the fact that if a bull hits him in the neck and he lands on his face and he ends up in a wheelchair, he probably would just embrace it. Dude, if you're a jackass person, like there's some part of you that thinks that you won't be disabled because you've already done everything I don't know. I think it's just that life is a theater for them. Everything is a stage. So if if they end up disabled, then they just make content out of that. So you think that the jackasses are a bunch of thespian performers? Maybe. Like the language you use made them sound quite reputable. I kind of respect it. I respect. There's like, this is it. I'm going to market my own sort of like daredevil tendencies. I I haven't watched many. I think the first Jackass was a movie I snuck into. But beyond that, I don't think I've seen any of them. You sn- The first Jackass came out like in the early 2000s. Yeah, I brought... We, we were just hanging out downtown. There was a, an old man going into the movies alone. And we just went up to him and he's like, we were like, can we come in with you and... We'll pay for your ticket if you say that you are a parent. And he was like, okay. You really have lived a life, Tony. Yeah, that's a good time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I, I kind of respect it. I like Steve-O kind of quite a bit. I don't really know Johnny Knoxville well enough to have an opinion. But I, I feel like all of those guys, like even Eric Andre is part of the new Jackass group. And he seems like the kind of guy that if he became disabled, he would just, he, I mean, I'm sure he would admit that he didn't want that to happen, but I think he would just take it in stride. 
Agreed. Um, and I I do really like Eric Andre and Sasha Cohen. Yeah. These guys that put themselves in harm's way for the sake of a laugh or the sake of yeah. making some greater point that they quite often do achieve through their work. Uh, so like they are in some sense more daring comedians or performers than your average uh, Kevin James. But so, okay. So Jackass is good. I guess we've decided. Uh, do you think that uh, I had a question for you about murder ball and I can't remember. All right. Well, let me play another clip and see if it reminds you. Sure. If you give them tough love, they learn the difference from wrong and right. And my dad was a police officer. If you badmouthed him, you did anything at all, there was consequences. And he, he was very hard-nosed, and he had really huge hands, and he hit really hard. And uh, I let him know that uh, uh, it, it's not even close. What I do to him, then, that what my father did to me. So this is a clip that I alluded to earlier that is yeah. basically uh, Joe the coach hand-waving over the verbal abuse that he frequently inflicts upon his son throughout the film in uh, just the way he, he talks yeah. uh, with, with a lot of authority and sort of like an implied lack of self-awareness, I think. There's a scene where his wife, he and his wife are at dinner at a restaurant and his wife is like, I think we should go a little easier on our son, you know? Maybe we're being too hard on him. Mm-hmm. And Joe was just like, if it wasn't for me, imagine where he he would be. Like, he is the man he is today because of what I've done. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. My instinct was so the opposite. Like, imagine what he would be if you were, like, a supportive, loving father who is, like, emotionally available. For sure, yeah. There's a scene where the boy actually talks about his father and uh, growing up with his dad, this amazingly accomplished rugby, rugby player. And he talks about his father with such reverence. And there's a heartbreaking moment where he um, is going through his dad's memorabilia, which is a word I have trouble pronouncing. And there's a T-shirt that he's he's like, oh, and this is a shirt from his from the last time that he won a championship with the U.S. team. And it's like a faded shirt from the 80s or something. And the kid is like, yeah, my dad uh, gave this to me. He said he didn't want it. I'm not sure why. And the reason is because his dad feels a lot of shame and resentment toward the U.S. team for basically yeah. cutting him. So his, so Joe is giving his son the fucking runoff from his old life and saying, I don't want to look at this here. You wear it like, son, I don't care about. Yeah. And it's kind of crushing because he puts on the shirt and he's like, he loves it. And he's like, look, there's my dad. And it doesn't actually feel like an engineered moment. Like yeah. there are moments in this movie that feel prescribed for the sake of a narrative but this is not one of them and it's pretty heartbreaking joe makes his son dust his trophies regularly yeah his son has his own trophies from not rugby but his own trophies for his own achievements Mm -hmm. and has nowhere to put them but his dad has a whole cabinet of trophies and makes his son dust them off for him just this idea that there's this this wheelie patriarch whose ego is the size of 10 people and he just like his sons exist only to serve his purpose uh all he cares about is winning or dominating 
in his area of expertise. Like that is pretty fascinating. This idea that he has a standard for his able-bodied son that the son is not meeting is also fascinating because it, it, it defies expectations in multiple ways. Even for me as a disabled viewer, I was like, I've never seen this before. Fuck this guy. But I also love that this story is being told. Yeah. Uh, I do have one more clip. I don't, I just want to play it and then we'll talk about it. I went to the wedding and my chick's mom's sister comes up. She goes, hi, Scotty. I'm I'm so, I'm so and so. I'm, I hear you're going to the Special Olympics. And all of a sudden I went from being the man at the wedding to a fucking retard. And I mean, it was the worst feeling. Special Olympics is something that happens once a year and it's for people who are mentally challenged. What they do in the Special Olympics is very honorable. It's amazing what they can do, but this is something that's totally different. It's a little different. We're not going just for this feel good. Please, pat me on the back. Thank you. Thank you for participating. Yeah, no, no, no. We're not going for a hug. We're going for a fucking gold medal. So this is where masculine energy, machismo, maybe we should have more women in it, kind of comes to a head. This is the, That's the most toxic kind of soundbite in the movie. Yeah, by far. Yeah, and it's, very, it's also very 2003. Yeah. You know, it's also, again, like, these people are sort of launched into the world of disability. They're by no means eased into any of it. And so you can't expect them to have a full understanding of the difference between Special Olympics, Paralympics, and and a better appreciation for what Special Olympics actually is. Yeah. But you can tell that that clip was delivered by someone who, you know, was a little ignorant or a lot ignorant. But um, well, you know, I, I'm I'm hoping. I'm confident and at least hoping that that person, you know, cringes at that clip now. I mean, at the very least, what it's asserting is that disabled people by virtue of their disability are not inherently sensitive to differences in ability level between other disabled people. Right. That's good so point. that is that is super relevant. Uh, it doesn't seem to want to cast that quote in a negative light. More so what it's trying to speak to is that these guys... Uh, expect to be taken seriously as athletes. It's just like a very unfortunate way of arriving at that idea. Yeah. Um, And it's also like the movie itself in the way that it frames rugby is already making this argument very well visually and situationally. And so it's not really a necessary quote. Yeah. Um. One one sort of complaint that I have about the film is that for a movie about a sport, it doesn't do a good job of drawing you into the actual rugby games that are played throughout the film. Um, and because it spends as much time with Joe on the Canadian team and then the rest of the U.S. players, it doesn't really ever frame the natural tension of a rivalry very well. What draws you in is not the moment-to-moment uh, gameplay, but the character portraits on screen. Yeah, so I actually saw that as a positive, but I agree with you that the sport aspects weren't really at the forefront of the movie. Like 
they they did capture a couple games between Canada and the U.S., and they were both very tight games that basically came down to the wire. And you're right, the tension wasn't really there. I wasn't feeling it like I would be in a you know the longest yard or something. Mm-hmm. But I think that the movie was trying to be more character based, and in I, I appreciated that about it because I think I would have felt a bit disappointed if the movie focused more on just demonstrating the gameplay and getting us invested in who won the game more so than showing the people playing the game. So I kind of respected the movie for doing that, but you're right. It didn't really play up those tensions. There was also like a C plot that had to do with um, one of the paralysis origin stories of the wheelies. Um, Basically this one guy um, was fell asleep drunk in the back of a friend's pickup truck. And then the friend who was also drunk uh, went to drive home and turned a corner very sharply and basically threw this guy into a river and he was paralyzed. Hit a tree, I think. Yeah. So that story in and of itself is quite harrowing and very sad and probably necessary for the movie. But there's this whole plot where, um, the movie wants us to feel tension between the guy who caused the accident and the wheelie. And it doesn't, it didn't really work for me. Like it tries to say that there's like a, a conflict between them and that they can't really talk to one another. Um, but then there's also an implied resolution by the end of the movie. And it doesn't spend enough time with these two people to really flesh out their friendship. So you just sort of get th- these vague beats uh, like of intent and it's not they don't really sell it very well so i it felt flat for me yeah the resolution fell flat for me i felt a bit of the tension especially that one scene where the driver in the accident goes back to the original spot mm-hmm. he kind of just surveys the land and he's like yeah so i guess he would have flown all the way over there and landed in that canal and crazy. And then you can tell that maybe they asked him, how does it feel to come back here? And he was like, yeah, I don't feel anything. It's just a thing that happened. There was an accident. I don't feel any negative feelings. And the way he said it to me felt like he was sort of putting up a wall and he actually definitely did feel something that he just wasn't really ready to confront or air publicly. And so that tension felt real to me. I will. Okay. So you're right, actually. Yeah. Um, and it also didn't feel engineered at all. No. You could tell, I think that he, that it took a long time for him to build up that wall to be oh, able yeah. to say, like, I don't think I don't it, like, it was just an accident. It was beyond my control. So yeah, yeah you're right. I was just going to say, maybe if the movie didn't force the resolution at the end, they just let, let that be the sum total of that person's contribution to the documentary. Yeah. It would have been much more impactful. It was sort of one of, you know, how those documentaries end and there's like a little sentence to wrap up every plot line or character line. Mm-hmm. And theirs was just, they talk every day now. And mm-hmm. you don't really know like how they got there. What did they talk about? Like, what is the substance? They never speak on camera either. Together. 
Yeah. There's shots of them like in the same frame, like laughing or something, but they never actually talk on camera. Yeah. We have talked about this movie for quite a while. I just saw the time. We're definitely up there. I just want to say like overall, I liked this movie quite a bit. I thought it was very raw and real. Um, It wasn't overproduced. It felt like you really got to know these guys. Again, there was definitely some toxic people in the movie that I probably wouldn't want to necessarily be friends with. But I think that's good for us because it does show what we've been trying to talk about in that the wheelie community is full of every kind of person. We're just people. So there are going to be disabled people from every class. And that's a good thing that we need to emphasize because, you know, we shouldn't be glorified or compartmentalized or put all into the same box. And this movie doesn't do that by any means. It's also very raw in terms of its depiction of the sport. I mean, there were a lot of, like, scenes of chairs flipping, and it's it's a very raw sport, and I appreciated that, that it doesn't bubble wrap these people at all in any way, both physically or emotionally. It's fucking shocking to see a guy, like a, a, a paralyzed person, just fucking uh, get T-boned. You're like, holy fuck. Like, yeah, near the beginning of the movie, there's two disabled guys, like, wrestling. Yeah. They just straight up, like, trying to take each other down. I think there is almost a call for security. Uh, I agree, Tony. I think, despite my complaints about some parts of this movie being engineered, I think that's just a symptom of the time, you know, like, where documentaries were... And the medium a little bit. And the medium, yeah. But I do think that it um, does a lot to challenge expectations, uh, both for able-bodied and disabled audiences. I feel like it is very honest uh, throughout. There are very nuanced character portraits. Like, your level of emotional investment will be constant. Like, it's a good movie. Yeah. Like comparing, just very quickly, comparing this film to the a movie I can't even remember what the fuck it was called. Like Amy goes to France, San Francisco. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell was that movie called? How to Confront Your Doctor Who Disabled You? 30, 39 Pounds of Love. Right. 39 uh, film reels of trash. Um, compared to that documentary, I mean, this is just like in another world. It's so good, yeah. There were moments where I was like, oh, this is doing for the time what Crip Camp did for us now. A totally, dude. Totally. Yeah. It was directed by an able-bodied guy, but it does feel like it. it uh, like all creative decisions and the, the forward momentum of the film is driven by wheelies. There's this like charming moments where you suddenly realize that even the refs of the of the games are disabled yeah. and they they're kind of like portly like misshapen kind of like uh football uh coaches and managers and stuff like they're, like they're very built to be refs yeah yeah they're just like the wheeling equivalent of a ref and like i don't know why there's a novelty in the sight of that for me but there totally is well again it's not a sport for disabled people it's a sport by disabled people totally and that's a huge distinction mm-hmm. yeah good shit so check it out 90 minutes 
Till next time. Take care, everyone.